So what what I learned where, you know, where Tougher Minds comes from, which is the uh, my award-winning consultant, uh, where we work with sport, we work with business, we work in education. It's really this understanding that most of what we're doing most of the time is mindless habitual behavior. We haven't understood that until, you know, fairly recently. We're running on autopilot most of the time. And most of that automatic behavior isn't all that helpful for being healthy, happy, and at our best in the world that we live in, because most of the automatic behavior is wired for survival, um, which we can think of as staying alive, avoiding physical violence threats, but also being liked by important people in our lives, because that's really important for us, passing our genes on, but also, uh, you know, Homo sapiens' unique survival advantages to work intelligently in in teams it's it's teamwork so you need people around you to like you so most of what we we automatically do actually can be really unhelpful for being our best in the modern world so being the idea of tougher minds is being aware of that and just being a bit tougher on yourself to push yourself and to recognize what some of those unhelpful uh, habits and behaviors are and start to very deliberately and proactively build more helpful habits Welcome to the Biology of Business, where we talk about the anatomy and physiology of a business so you can apply your clinical reasoning skills to your business reasoning and create a healthy, sustainable, impactful and profitable clinic. I hope you enjoy listening and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by the author of The Habit Mechanic, Dr John Finn. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me, Kate really looking forward to it. So John, you're an absolute expert in helping people achieve their best in life. Can you just explain to the listener how you've uh, got to this point in your career? Yes, well, you mentioned The Habit Mechanic, which is an our best-selling book, and actually it's just been published in Korea, and it'll be published in Chinese soon as well. It's only been out about nine months, so it's getting real good traction. That's an accumulation of my life's work. So the habit mechanic took me about 20 years to write, um, or over 20 years. So when I when I was 18, I went to university to study sports science, essentially. Um, physiology, psychology, you know, nutrition, motor control. I really like the psych side. So I went to study um sports uh, master in sports psychology. And then I went to work in professional sport, um, where I'd, you know, work alongside uh, physios. In the, in the part of the backroom staff um, and I ended up doing a, a PhD to, to learn more about why some of these extremely talented 18-year-olds that people pay millions of pounds for in the uh, world of professional soccer and, well, soccer mainly, yeah, um, why, why can they be so fantastic when they're 18 but not always, you know, be fulfill their potential into their early 20s and sometimes you know their career sort of fails then so I did my PhD on that and the thing that I got really interested in which I suppose was a foundation of tougher minds is that I, I was pretty compelled that the people that were really being at their best if we just want to use that very simple language they were very good at regulating emotions Mm. and so recognizing when their emotions were unhelpful and being able to do something to get that you know under control so if you put that in the world of professional sport it looks like 
I turn up for training today where I, I need to train really hard to develop and progress myself, but I don't really feel like it and I can't be bothered, but I'm going to push myself. I'm going to push past that and I'm going to still put my best foot forwards. Um, you know, when you're in the arena, when you're playing professional sport and the pressure's on, it's, I don't feel good. I feel nervous. I'm not going to be able to do it. It's been able to recognize that they're not helpful things to be thinking and push past that and get your focus back onto where it needs to be. And what I see, what I saw, so if you take an example, we signed, um, when I, so I, I work really in professional football, rugby, rugby league, rugby union, cricket, golf. But if in professional football, one of the teams I worked for, they were very good at signing uh, young players, 18-year-olds from Premier League teams, very good players, but they weren't better than uh, Wayne Rooney or Steven Gerrard or David Beckham. It was hard for them to get into the first-team squads. They'd often come on loan with us, um, you know, move down a, a league, come on loan with us and... If we liked them, we'd sign them maybe for about £100,000. And some of these players we signed for £100,000, one in particular, actually we sold him back to the club we bought him from for £100,000 two years later for three and a half million. And he was their, he was their product. We just <laughs> let him come and play with us for a few seasons. But there were other young uh, young men that, we, that we'd signed and certainly I saw other clubs that would get signed for similar amount of monies. But two years later, people wouldn't even pay them a wage anymore to play professional football, you know, never mind increased in in value. And for me, it wasn't about how good they were at kicking a ball or how physically fit they were. It was about their ability to regulate themselves. You know, and it's uh, recovering from injuries just as important, you know, can they do all the things they need to do around an injury? to optimise rehabilitation so they can get back into uh, training onto the pitch as quickly as possible. When I looked at the development of these young people, they were spending thousands of hours learning how to kick footballs, and if it's a football example, doing the physical fitness, even then starting to learn about nutrition and what to eat. But they were spending pretty much zero time learning how to regulate themselves. And for me, that was the main effect variable. Uh, so my PhD was investigating that to look at how important is our people's ability to regulate themselves and actually can people learn how to get better at this. So I was what's called the academy to first team transition. Um, you know, my third study, for example, I followed, I actually followed a guy called Johnny Bairster, who's now become a very, very successful uh, batsman, maybe one of the best in the world this summer where he was 18 and he was um, in his first full-time uh, contract at Yorkshire and looking at, I spent a year with him just looking at the challenges he was facing as he was going through that first transition and how he was learning how to get better at managing himself, essentially. And, you know, why wouldn't we teach people formally to do that? So what what I learned where, you know, where Tougher Minds comes from, which is the uh, my award-winning consultancy, where we work with sport, we work with business, we work in education. It's really this understanding that most of what we're doing most of the time is mindless habitual behavior. We haven't understood that until, you know, fairly recently. We're running on autopilot most of the time. And most of that automatic behavior isn't all that helpful for being healthy, happy, and at our best in the world that we live in. Because most of the automatic behavior is wired for survival. Um, which we can think of as staying alive, 
avoiding physical violence threats, but also being liked by important people in our lives because that's really important for us, passing our genes on, but also, uh, you know, Homo sapiens' unique survival advantage is to work intelligently in, in teams. It's, it's teamwork, so you need people around you to like you. So most of what we're, we automatically do actually can be really unhelpful for being our best in the modern world. So being the idea of tougher minds is being aware of that and just being a bit tougher on yourself to push yourself and to recognise what some of those unhelpful uh, habits and behaviours are and start to very deliberately and proactively build more helpful habits. And that's what the Habit Mechanic book is. It's a guide of how to do that. It's not a typical book, It's which has one idea repeated 10 times. It literally is all the trainings that we've been developing over the past 20 years put into a book format. So it's a manual for life. It's a toolkit for success. We have an app as well, the Habit Mechanic University app which works with the book and supercharges it. So, so yeah, that's the potted history. Thank you, John. You make me think of two immediate examples. One was when I was um, rowing and I was thinking about whether I was going to apply to do physiotherapy and I spent some time with the GB squad physio and one of the Olympians came in and then half an hour later after his appointment was over, another six foot six mountain came in and I really remember the chap saying, it was called Mark Edgar. And he said to me, what's the difference, physically, what's the difference between two, these two athletes? Nothing. And he really, was, this is the difference between what's made somebody a very good club rower and what's made somebody an international rower. And it wasn't about their physicality or their, or their potential for training, which uh, I guess is what you're uh, confirming there with what you, you observed in professional sport. Yeah, and I think the challenge with the psychological sciences is that, to my estimation, they're about 70 years behind the physiological sciences. So one of the first chapters in, in the book is about Roger Bannister and the first person to run the sub-four-minute mile, also studying to be a medical doctor at Oxford University at the same time, but also, many people don't know this, also a research scholar at Oxford where he was undertaking a research about the impact of oxygen on distance running. So in the 1940s, he was in the Oxford University's laboratories. He had people on treadmills measuring the peripheral indices, measuring uh, gas and oxygen, the uh, carbon dioxide and, and, and oxygen exchange. And he was using technologies in the 1940s that would are recognisable today. If you go into a modern sports science laboratory, the tech looks pretty much the same. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit more sophisticated now. And Bannister was able to use those insights to inform how he trained and actually ran so that he could get better at conserving oxygen. Mm. We've only been able to look inside the human brain for the last 20, 25 years. So Bannister was doing this very sophisticated physiological research in the 1940s, and we've been able to do that kind of stuff since the 1930s, whereas we've only had functional MRI scanners um, for the last 20, 25 years. And that means that most of the models and theories we've been using about psychology, why people do what they do, are what we call black box theories. There were theories that were developed without actually understanding what was going on inside human brains. Mm -hmm. And when we started to understand that, some of the things that we really took for granted are actually completely untrue. For example... If you spoke to the top neuroscientists 
25 years ago, they were pretty compelled that when you stop physically growing, your brain stopped changing in any meaningful way. And of course, we know we now know that's nonsense. Our brain, by a process called neuroplasticity, those 100 billion neurons that we have in our brain, they are changing all the time in accordance with what we practice. So unfortunately, the psychological sciences have been using these outdated black box models. And that's why then I don't think the traditional approach is to um to, to to the psychological to helping people psychologically whether it's coaching or or even cbts then that's not that effective because it's all focused on knowing what you should do and it doesn't actually help people to change their behavior to actually in in other words build better habits so it's a really exciting time for psychology and hopefully There'll be, if people want to be at their best, there's going to be less and less difference in their ability to really, you know, train their brain in simple language because we now, we've now got a much better understanding uh, of how to do that. Or certainly the habit mechanic approach has, and I think that is unique. There's nothing pres- else on Presumably some of these, I mean, it's quite interesting what you're describing about, you know, some 18-year-old footballers that are all very equal at 18 on the playing field and very competent at their sport. But presumably some of their behaviours in terms of how they handle stress or how they handle it's a muddy day and it's raining and I really can't be bothered today or whatever, I'd rather play computer games. Presumably a lot of this has just been ingrained from childhood in terms of how they have learned to behave at home or at school and how they've learned to tackle challenges and tackle their own emotions um from a very young age yeah we're learning and and this is the other thing so the example of we thought our brains were fixed that meant if that was true that meant it was all about genetics so people know about the nature nurture nature nurture debate well that's not if if people want to use that debate now their dating is very out is their thinking is very out of date Mm -hmm. We now talk about nature plus nurture because they're working together all the time and they're working together before we're born. If your mother is depressed, that impacts your brain function. So you're exposed, your environment inside your mother's body is going to make you more prone to being stressed, essentially. Mm. So yeah, we are developing all the time because of the genetics that we have but also the practice that we're exposed to via a process called uh, epigenetics. And the I, mean, I, I, I break all this down in the habit mechanic, but essentially we can be far more deliberate in helping people to practice things and automate things that are going to make it easier for them to be at their best. So yeah, we can take out some of that chance that you had great parents and they were able to you know guide your coping mechanisms on a really positive pathway um so you did are we speaking at the same point there sorry Kat. i think so because what's really quite interesting there was um well, a while ago now i can't remember the details i read the bruce lipton's biology of belief and he's a cell biologist and i thought it was fascinating when he really nailed the point in the very early chapters it's all about the environment. You know, you have actually far, which is what you're confirming that we have far more power over um, our, how our lives shape out than if we stick with a sort of cellular biological genetic model the, that, that we're 
perhaps taught than is than is true. And there's a lot of you know, okay, look out or don't look out on what your environment is at home or school. But actually, as an adult, you've got a lot of choices in terms of how you want to uh, show up and don't have to, you know, blame it all on the cells or all on the genes or because uh, that's simply not true. Which I think is what you're you're saying there. Yeah, so we have more control over our health, our happiness, us being our best than anybody else does. But it's becoming more and more difficult to to manage ourselves because of the world that we live in. You know, we're designed to move around and solve problems. We're designed to walk about 12 miles a day. And if you go back to London 100 years ago, people were walking 10 miles a day. Mm. Our grandparents' generation slept mm. an extra hour per night. The f- kind of food we can put into our bodies now um, didn't exist 20 years ago and our bodies don't even know what they are and they can't get into the brain for example we now have an endless ability to get distracted in simple terms whether it's by social media uh, 24-7 streaming we have an endless ability to compare our lives to other people and feel bad about ourselves because everybody else's lives look better so yeah we do have more control but it's more challenging but from from what I've learned over the over the past twenty years and doing you know three degrees in this area, is that the key to doing better is to become a habit mechanic. Is to take is proactively take control and manage your habits because they're the they're the best unit of behaviour to focus on, and we can reprogram and rewire our habits. And and habits are not just that. You know, pop psychology has done a really bad job on habits. It's explained them as it's 40, 50, 60% of what you do. We think of them as very physical things. Now, habits are at least 98% of what we're doing to 100% of what we're doing and thinking at any given time. Habits drive your biases. They drive your belief systems. And what most people, well, a lot of people don't recognize is that, you know, we're thinking all the time and we're talking to ourselves all the time. And if you don't think you're talking to yourself, just notice how you've said to yourself, I'm not speaking to myself. It's there all the time. That is driven by your habits. So you can get in the habit of beating yourself up, of getting stressed, of getting distracted. So it's not just smoking or, you know, picking your nose or whatever it is. It's it's driving everything that we're doing. And we can understand those, those habits and we can start to build better ones. So I think what I'm hearing there is we are really living in a time where sort of psychological warfare and the battle for your own mind space has become more challenging, but equally has the the knowledge that you're sharing of how you can do something about it and take more control of your life than you perhaps previously thought. And you instantly make me think of that little video that I'm sure most people have seen that's done the rounds on social media of the Navy, Navy SEAL saying something like, if you want to conquer the world, start by making your bed every day. Yeah, it could, yeah. So it's it's about one tiny thing at a time. That word control the controllables is probably very familiar with people, but I don't think people often associate that with how they think. We can control how we think, and that's really important to understand. So if you're in the habit of doubting yourself and or dwelling on things, that is something you can start to control and rewire. So yeah, we've got to start with, and and the first thing I ask people to start with is at the start of the day, you rate how well 
did you do your best to be your best and achieve your goals yesterday out of 10? 10 would mean you were perfect. One would mean you failed. You're probably somewhere in between. Then once you've uh, set yourself, you've given yourself a score, let's say you got um, a seven out of 10, you then you then create what we call a tiny empowering action, a T. Just picking one tiny thing you can do today that's going to make your life a bit easier. It might be, I'm going to write down a positive reflection at the end of the day. It might be, I'm going to create a plan for the day. It might be, I'm going to go for a five-minute walk at lunchtime. Just one tiny thing that's going to make my life easier. And then step three is you say, why? Why is doing that thing going to be helpful for me? And you put those together, that's a T plan. And that's the first tool in the habit mechanic. It's in chapter one. And that, so the habit mechanic book has over, has about 30, 33, 34 of those types of tools that show you how to analyze your habits and how to start building new ones for yourself, but also tools that show you how to make it easier for other people to build new habits. Wonderful, wonderful. So what you're saying is it's one tiny step at the time. You've got to make the decision there in the first place by the sounds of it. It's like, actually, once you've made the decision and recognized that you can take control of your life and, and, and yourself and your mind, then it's just actually very manageable in, in terms of it being a tiny tiny step at a time rather than a um a, a, a something massive that has to happen from today to tomorrow but um, if i'm understanding correctly the pain is in the decision or understanding that you can make you have a choice and you can make a decision and choosing to make a decision yeah so what we've been led to believe that if we is that if we want to change we need discipline we need willpower mm. And what we've learned is that willpower is a limited resource. We only have so much of it. So what we need to do is use our willpower to help us to analyze our habits. And again, in the habit mechanic, there are multiple habit analysis tools that you can use. Target one helpful habit that we want to improve. And then we need to use our willpower to create a behaviorally science-backed plan. And if we use the behavioral science, we don't then have to rely on our willpower because by using the behavioral science, we're making it easier for our the limbic regions of our brain to do what we want it to do. So we've created our own behavioral science model because the, the challenge we find in academia is that people want to have theory wars with each other. So they say, this is my theory and it's the best theory. And someone else says, no, your theory is rubbish. My theory is better than yours. And here's why your theory is rubbish. And what I found over 20 plus years is that no one's, <laughs> no one's theory actually explains everything about why people do what they do. Um, so we've you know, gone and found the best theoretical models. And I think there are broadly nine of them. And we've put them together. But there are nine core factors. And this is like the habit mechanic change management system. There are nine core factors that are driving what we think and what we do. In other words, our habits all of the time. But these factors are largely invisible to us. We can't see them. But if we know what the factors are, we can start to activate them so we can get them working for us instead of working against us. And one of those factors is what we call the tiny factor, which means we can make change, we can build new helpful habits, but it starts with one tiny step at a time. Uh, so when I, when I was young, this, let me share a, a, a connected physio story. So when I was 18, I was a, I was a good rugby player. Um, actually, the reason that 
I pivoted into wanting to become a sports psychologist because I choked under pressure in a selection match uh, before an Australia student international test match where I um, made a massive mistake, got substituted, didn't get selected. But before that and around that time, I'd ruptured my quad. When I was 18, I ruptured one of my quad muscles. So I had a lot of uh, physio rehab. And, you know, you get that piece of paper from the physio back then that tells you what to do. So, you know, if I was going to write one of those pieces of paper, I know where I want, I, I'd know where I want to get uh, Dr. John Finn to, but I'd start by just giving him, asking him to do one repetition of the exercise to start with. And then the day after, maybe five. And then the day after that, you know, maybe 10 and just building it up like that. So that's helping us to activate the tiny factor. But that's only one of nine factors. Um, so yeah, the, the, our brain's number one operating rule is the easier it is to do or think something, the more likely it is we will do it. Because our brain's all about saving energy. Because for most of our existence, Homo sapiens on the planet Earth, energy has been a really scarce resource. There hasn't always been a supermarket on every corner. And we saw that kick in, that, in, that energy conservation instinct kick in in the pandemic where the supermarket shelves literally emptied overnight because people panicked. Um, but for most of our existence, we're hunter-gatherers. Energy has been a really scarce resource. So we're wired to conserve energy. And the most energy-efficient way of doing things is, is to habitualize things. Um, so that's why when we make things easy to do, it's more likely we will do them. So instead of me doing, uh, if I want to start to get back into a core habit in the morning of doing my press-ups and my sit-ups, instead of starting with 50 press-ups and 50 sit-ups, I'm going to start with one press-up and one sit-up and build up from there. Because if I do that, I'm much more likely to build a robust, sustainable new habit. Yeah, I once helped uh, you know, a, a lady who had MS and she used to be a swimmer and she thought she couldn't swim anymore. I, was like, I, I had actually known her since childhood. I was like, of course you can still swim. It didn't have, it hadn't crossed my mind she couldn't swim. And she got in the pool and she was a bookkeeper. She got in the pool and did two lengths and she treated her return to swimming exactly like bookkeeping. Every time she went, every week, she went three times a week. Every week she just aimed to add two lengths of time. So it was only, you know, the end of the quarter, she was swimming a mile or something. I can't remember, do the maths quickly. But it was fascinating to see somebody. She was so disciplined with her bookkeeping. She simply, once she'd been told, of course you can get back in the pool, of course you can swim. She just treated it exactly like you're describing there. Just, right, I'll just do two lengths. I'm not going to ask any more. And then every week, just another two lengths more. Um, and I, I've never seen anybody quite so disciplined as that of their own accord once they had permission to get in the pool. And I think that's exactly what you're describing. Don't overload that initial expectation of yourself and know that actually within a quarter, if you're just adding these tiny, tiny increments, you're going to go from one sit-up a day to 50 sit-ups just by tiny, tiny steps. Yeah, so that that's one of the factors that we need to activate. <laughs> there, are no, there are eight more. But... Yeah, that's okay. We'll stick with this one, John. So the other thing that I wanted to bring up, where you're talking about energy conservation and just the taking the easiest route, for physiotherapists, for psychologists, for dietitians, we're all very aware that the easiest route for many of our patients is to pop a pill, but it's not necessarily the healthiest solution for them long term. But it's made very easy to stay on a long term prescription for the rest of your life. 
And we're competing against asking people to change the way they think, change their diet, change their physical activity routines. I'm against something that takes seconds and no thought. How as clinicians who have other solutions that are non-pharmaceutical that can help people create a much healthier long-term life, can we utilise what you're describing and be consciously aware of what we are competing with? Yeah, well, you know, if our mission and this is definitely my mission, I I just want to make it as easy as possible for people to be at their best. And I want to use insights from cutting edge science to help people to do that. And I'm sure that's a shared mission with Mm. many uh, physicians. You know, I I think that physiotherapists are in a great position to extend the service they offer Mm. to also, you know, position that as what we might call coaching. Mm. But if we get to the heart of the matter, I can understand why popping a pill is is easier uh, to do for people because I can understand how it activates the nine action factors. And if we think about behaviours, we can think of a continuum. And I'm, I'm going to get on practically how how what physicians can do to make it easier for their patients to do what they want them to do. But let's just start with thinking of all, all behaviour on a continuum. What people, when I say behaviour, what people think and do. That's all it means. One end of the continuum is, is easy behaviours. That's things like checking your phone more often, eating more junk food, watching more Netflix, taking a pill if you've got pain. They're easy behaviours. The other end of the continuum are complex behaviours. That's things like building better sleeping habits, building better stress management habits, building better rehabilitation habits. Now, when we want people to do more simple behaviours, we don't have to worry about proactively activating behavioural science, the nine action factors, because it's already really, they're all activating those factors. They're all already working on your side. So if you want to get better at beating yourself up more often, which is a simple and easy behaviour, you'd have to worry about behavioural science. It's already on your side. If you want to get better at beating yourself up less often or building a better sleep habit or building better rehabilitation habits, you've got to use the behavioural science to help you to activate, build and sustain those new behaviours. So a good example of a complex behaviour that most of us are familiar with is learning to drive. So I could use that example to explain the nine action factors. So the first factor, if you want to learn how to drive, the first factor that you need is what we call the habit mechanic mindset. So it's a belief that I can learn to drive. It's a belief that I I can do this. And in your example, Kate, if your client got in the pool and she really didn't believe she could swim, she wouldn't have mm-hmm. been able to do it. She probably wouldn't get in the pool because she would sk- probably scared she was going to drown or something. Mm. So we need people to believe that they can change. And of course, when most of us went to school, it was conditioned into us that we were good at some things, but we were never going to be good at other things. And of course, that's just not true. Mm. But that's how that's what we've been con- conditioned. And many people are familiar with Carol Dweck's work about you know a, a fixed mindset and growth mindset. So we need people to believe they can change. And we can because... Our brains are changing all the time. So you're never going to learn to drive if you don't believe you can. The next factor is the tiny change factor, which I've already explained. But just to bring into the driving example, people readily accept that they're not going to learn how to drive after one lesson. 
In fact, after the first lesson, we probably don't even drive anywhere. We just learn where things are in the car. Yeah, when it comes to something like losing weight, if we haven't been able to do it after the first week, we'll never be able to do it. And it's a waste of time. You know, and I'm sure uh, some people feel like that um, with rehab as well. If they can't do it quickly and get back to where they want to be quickly, you know, I'll never be able to do it. The, ne- the, the third factor what we call personal motivation. So if I wanted to learn, if, if I've learned to drive, there was a bigger reason why, bigger, more meaningful reason. I had to get the kids to school. I had to get to work. I wanted to be the first person in my peer group to do it. So if we can connect a small change with bigger, meaningful reasons, that's going to make it easier to activate the change. So there's a tool we've got in the habit mechanic called the, the FAM story, which is a future ambitious, meaningful story. So it's a tool that allows us to quickly connect our long t- our long-term goals with our short-term, with our medium-term goals and our short-term goals. So we can connect quickly uh, the reasons for building better rehab habits to helping us to achieve our bigger, meaningful goals. The next factor is what we call personal knowledge and skills. So I might have all the motivation in the world to want to learn how to drive, but without more knowledge and skills, I won't be able to do it. Hence, that's why we have driving lessons. You know, and that's a big slice of what you get when you, when, certainly in my physiotherapy experiences, I've got much more knowledge and skills about what the problem is and how I can start to overcome it. But that's only one factor, one of the nine factors. Connected to that is what we call community knowledge and skills. So if I want to learn how to drive, it's really helpful if my parents know how to do that because they can give me free driving lessons at the weekend. Mm. And that's why we've created a language in the habit mechanic approach so that we can all learn simple language and I can teach my uh, this simple language to my to my patients that helps them to understand quite complex things, but in a really actionable, uh, easy way that they can actually use. Uh, um, something I'll get onto, we actually, we, we train people to become certified habit mechanic coaches. Um, so you can learn all this stuff and how to apply it to your patients. The next factor is what I call social influence. So I've already talked about how much we're driven driven by wanting to to be liked by important people in our lives. So we copy and model the important people, the behavior of the important people in our lives. So for example, if I want to learn to be a great driver, but my father doesn't believe in the speed limit, that's not going to be a great example for me. Mm. Or my mother doesn't think car insurance is a valid idea. That's not going to be a great example. Mm. So we model and we copy the people around us. The next factor is what we call the, re- the reward and penalty factor. So we are driven by re- quite complex reward and penalty systems. But if we think of the driving example, we get rewarded if we drive well, we get our license, we get to keep our license, our car insurance goes down, we get penalised if we drive poorly. So we might not get our license in the first instance. If we do, we might get monetary fines and points on our license. Then um, we get our car insurance goes up and eventually we lose our license. But there are these reward and penalty systems that we can learn about and we can learn how to activate or, or deactivate. Next factor is what we call external triggers. It could be physical or digital. So when you're driving, governments have worked out that if you don't keep reminding you what to do, accident rates really go through the roof. So now in a modern car, if you don't put your seatbelt on, you get a ping, ping, ping. 
you literally have a a number in front of you when you're driving, a speedometer, reminding you how quickly you're going. There is a line in the middle of the road that reminds you which side to drive on. Mm. There are speed cameras, there are crossings, there is signage everywhere, police cars, all reminding you what to do. And the final factor is what we call brain states. So in very simple terms, I go into all this in much more detail in the book, but in very simple terms, um, you know, if you try to learn to sleep, uh, to, to drive when you're sleep deprived, it's not going to be a success, is it? Yeah. So we've got to be mindful of getting the right, in, in simple terms, brain energies. Yeah. Um, we've got to, you know, we, we've got to be doing our rehab work at a time of day when we can focus and concentrate and re-establish that movement behavior that we, we want to establish. So we can use those nine action factors to help ourselves make positive change, but we can also use those factors um, and all the habit mechanic tools to help our clients to make positive changes. And as I said, we actually train people to become certified habit mechanic coaches. And I think that's actually, a, a, we only started doing that quite recently because of demand, but I could see how that would really supercharge a physiotherapist practice um, and actually help them to not only supercharge the work they do as a physio, but also help them to add other strings to their bow in the services that they can provide and the value they can offer uh, to their customers. So there's two questions I have just following on from um, you sharing those nine factors. The very first one being this belief, I can, which comes back to your point earlier about the level of sort of psychological, well, I can't use the phrase, psychological warfare we exist in at the moment. Um, because presumably having the belief, I can, is really dependent on the environment we're around so that it's within it's whatever it is we want to achieve, it's actually within our realms of possibility. Because if it's not within our realms of possibility, so if we lived on a remote island with no roads and no cars, learning to drive wouldn't even be within our realms of possibility. Being an Olympian wouldn't be in our realms of possibility if we didn't have exposure to a active people and athletes. So what I'm um, perhaps wondering or hearing is there's a real opportunity for clinicians as well to keep sharing positive case studies and positive stories and demonstrating the positive themselves to show that alternative ways or healthier ways of living and existing and achieving are possible and within the realms of possibility for their community. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, confidence, which is belief is connected to confidence. And for me, confidence is just believing you can control the outcomes in your life. So, and that's why building up tiny steps is really powerful. Oh, I can't do a pre- I can't I can't do press ups. I've never been able to do it. We'll just do one. Mm. Oh look, you've done one. Oh, well, you can do a press up, can't you? Okay, well tomorrow let's do two. So I am building up. So you know, with we know the power of uh positive case studies for sales and marketing because you're showing my product is going to give you more control over your life. That's what we're all selling at the end of the day. We're selling control. You're selling control uh, to, to your clients. And actually, the control you can give them over their lives is far better than being reliant on a pill mm. because that might eradicate pain, but it doesn't supercharge health, happiness, and, and being at my best. Whereas the things that you can give them and the habits that you can help them to build will do a much better job at that. So, yeah, 
So that, you're leading on perfectly to what my second question was, which was um, about this um, being driven by the complex reward penalty systems. And perhaps we should be more consciously aware of using that in terms of articulating what the risks are of the alternative of remaining on long-term prescriptions or of surgeries. Um, and not that they might not help, but what the long-term risks are and articulating yeah, what your options are in a more confident and assertive way than perhaps we currently do. But equally, where's the balance there? Because if we overplay the risks, and it'd be you know typical thinking about, I don't know, your homework. If you don't get 10 out of 10 in your spellings, as a consequence, you don't get to play football at the weekend, which is totally extreme. Where's the balance point between actually using this reward penalty um, factor for benefit, but not for then um, paralyzing the person to being too anxious to take action in case they fail. Yeah, and this is why we need to become a habit mechanic. That's a little bit like saying, what's the balance between, um, you know, as an expert physiotherapist, between successfully rehabbing an injured quad muscle or uh, making the person, you know, bust it open again and, and break it again. That's why you go to study for quite a long time to learn that. And it's the same in my case. But so there's not a simple answer there. But, you know, when you learn to become a habit mechanic, this is what we do with the certification. We look at the habits that you're trying to help your, your people to build. And we, you know, we dig into these areas and think about, well, what are the potential reward and penalty systems that are already at play? And how can we start to tweak those and use them to actually make it easier for people? to um, engage in the behaviours you want them to engage in. You know, and it, so we've seen for a long time now, for example, on cigarette packets, the the negative imagery about cancer, et cetera. They don't stop people smoking, full stop, but I'm sure they've impacted some people. But we also know that, you know, triggers like that, they become invisible after a while. People just stop paying attention to them. What I've been surprised, actually, with... Uh, the sort of the post-pandemic challenges we're facing with the mental health challenges and the, um, you know, the obesity, the um, diabetes epidemic we're seeing, is that I'm not seeing more public triggering of the damaging effects uh, not exercising gives, the damaging effects that eating too much sugar every day gives, the damaging effects that sleeping properly doesn't. I'm not seeing that anywhere in the public domain. Mm. And I don't think people are really aware. I think when people think, for example, about eating, they think about body image. They don't think about brain function and health and happiness. Um, when they think about exercise, it's the same. They don't necessarily correlate that with, I'm going to feel better about myself if I get out of the house, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, um, I think it's, it's a great point. And we can certainly, you know, the reward and penalty systems are, are very complex because they're, they're very subtle. And we can have intrinsic reward and penalty systems. We can have extrinsic we can have social the nine action factors lots of them are interconnected so they're going to be connected to your personal uh, goals we can reinforce sometimes trigger like a speed camera for example is a is a trigger that's a reward and penalty sy mm -hmm. system there's a really interesting case study i think someone like volkswagen had like an innovation award and someone created a, a speed camera lottery device where you didn't just get penalised for driving uh, poorly, you get rewarded for driving well. 
So if you drive if you drove at the correct speed limit when you went past the speed camera, you got entered into a lottery. <laughs> so you had the chance to win something. You know, so that's a interesting ways that we can play about with these ideas. So John, if you have a crystal ball in front of you. I do. <laughs> if you had a crystal ball in front of you, what do you see with regards to the reclamation of good health in society? Is it is it gonna occur? Isn't it gonna occur? I really fear what we're gonna see as a fallout of the neck of the pandemic that's just starting to happen. I was going to Paris um on you know for a weekend with my partner just before Christmas. And we were had an early, you know, an earliest flight, and it just struck me as as we were in the airport, you know, people are already drinking alcohol at nine o'clock in the morning, they're getting into their full English breakfasts. You can buy, you know, coffee now in the Starbucks that has more calories in it than you need for an entire day. And the thing that occurred to me was if getting your car serviced and MOT'd was covered by another you know, taxpayer pot, would you look after your car as well as you currently do? You probably wouldn't. So I think that the way the NHS is currently structured isn't probably fit for purpose um, and that we need to help people to be more accountable for their own behaviour. The way I'm trying to do that is through help empowering people to be habit mechanics um, with you know putting the manual for life out with the habit mechanic book and the habit mechanic app and empowering uh, more people and you know hopefully some physiotherapists to become experts in this area so they can really help their clients. So I think there's a way forwards, but we've got to activate all those nine action factors and get them working together. And because the National Health Service is such a big player in the UK, we've got to make sure that we get the nine action factors working correctly at that level. So on the one hand, you know, I'm quite worried about the future. But on the other hand, um, as I said, that mechanic book, which is our making our train, training available to everybody. Already people are telling us life-changing stories. Um, and I think that's the problem is that even though if you've, if you've wanted to change, you've wanted to do better, I just don't think that the current sort of coaching methodologies are all that helpful because they're all about knowing and not doing. And just to make, give a real simple example there, most people know and agree it's a good idea to eat five portions of fruit and vegetables a day and to walk 10,000 steps. Yet the NHS is still spending more than half its annual budget on treating diseases that emerge because people don't do those things. And it's been the same in the past. If I want to get better at managing stress, I can I can know what to do and it's a good idea to do, but building the habit is a different idea. It's the same for physical rehabilitation. I might know what exercises I need to do, but doing them is a different story. Um, so I'm I'm really happy to see people um, using these these habit mechanic tools, which moves you past knowing and doing, shows you how to how to build better habits, how to automate it, using them for this, themselves, but also using them with their clients as well, and getting really good, um, really good traction. So for me, you know, the glass is half full at the moment. There's still work to do. And how can people hear more from you, John, if they'd like to hear more um, about the Habit Mechanic and hear more about your your views and opinions? So we have the Habit Mechanic podcast, which is on all the major platforms. You can go to our website, tougherminds.co.uk. Um, loads of free resources on there. 
You can find out more about the book on there. You can find out more about the Habit Mechanic University out there. The app is is on Android. It's in Google Play and also on Apple. So it's in the the App Store. And if you want to get a copy of the book, um, you can go. It's available on on any major online uh, book site, including Amazon. We've got the audio book as well. Um, In fact, at the moment, the audio book is free in the app, uh, the Habit Mechanic University app. you know, and what people do in the app, it's things like the tea plan that we shared. You go and you share your tea plan, but also there's a, a dashboard in there where you can start to track and monitor your habits and, and plan to build new ones. And I, I think that's a great tool also for physiotherapists to use with their patients because it's going to empower the patient to take more responsibility for doing that rehabilitation, but also you know, build better habits across every area of their life. Yeah, and if you're interested in learning about becoming a certified habit mechanic coach, drop us an email. I'm very active on on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, just tell me you heard me on Kate's show and uh, we'll connect. But we're really excited to grow um, the habit mechanic presence in in the area of physiotherapy. It would be great to get some uh, physiotherapists as certified habit mechanic coaches. I think that's a really exciting area. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, grab a copy of How to Create a Super Successful Practice Plan at marchandmethod.com forward slash grow. And whilst you're there, you can check out the free training that'll help you tackle common problems practice owners just like you face. Thirdly, at marklandmethod.com forward slash grow, you can sign up for my free newsletter where I send out weekly hints and tips. You'll also get links to the podcast, articles and other resources that you might find helpful and inspiring as you grow your practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can access more influential guests and bring their lessons back to you here.